0: Hello everyone, I'm Grace Beatty and welcome to Wicked Women the Podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end. This podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will be analyzing Queen Margaret of Anjou, the wife of King Henry VI of England, and a leading player in the Wars of the Roses, also known as the Cousins' War. Discussing Margaret's life and legacy with me today will be historian Dr. Elizabeth Norton, best-selling author of numerous biographies on medieval and Tudor women, including She-Wolves, the notorious queens of medieval England. Continue listening to learn more about this powerful and rebellious Woman from history. Shakespeare called her the she wolf of France and a hateful, withered hag. Philippa Gregory described her as the bad queen. Contemporary chronicles described her as poor and alone and as a great perversion. Margaret of Anjou has gone down in history as one of the many villains of the Wars of the Roses. Her story emulates the concept that history is written by the victors, for the truth is. Margaret and her cause lost spectacularly and brutally. While history has not been particularly kind to her husband, King Henry VI of England, the majority of the blame and character assassination falls on Margaret. However, for all the condemnation that has been leveled at Margaret as Queen of England, she was never born to be queen. Margaret was a minor relation to the Queen of France and quickly learned that power was not guaranteed but something that had to be fought for. Margaret refused to conform to contemporary expectations of womanhood and queenship throughout her life and paid the price with her legacy. Margaret was born on the 23rd of March, 1430 in the Lorraine region of France. She was the second daughter born to the impoverished René, Duc d'Anjou, and his wife Isabel, Duchess of Lorraine, René was the titular king of Naples, Sicily, Jerusalem, and Hungary, but he didn't actually rule over any of them. Margaret's family was dominated by women in power. Her own mother had taken the reins of the Duchy of Anjou when René was a prisoner of war, and Margaret's grandmother, Yolande of Aragon, ruled as regent for her son. Yolande of Aragon had gambled and supported the disinherited Dauphin Charles, the same king Joan of Arc had fought for. She married her daughter Marie to Charles and would see her daughter become Queen of France. In the 1440s, a marriage was arranged between Margaret and the King of England, Henry VI. Margaret's husband B was the young son of the infamous Henry V, who had gained the French crown after the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. I'll include more about that in my show notes. But after years of continual fighting in what would come to be known as the Hundred Years' War, Charles reclaimed the French throne with the Treaty of Arras in 1435. After the death of Henry V, his son Henry VI still wanted control of France, but he was unwilling to send more men into battle. The solution was a marriage between Henry VI and a member of the French royal family. As Elizabeth Norton points out,
1: so she's young. Um, she's a teenager. I can't remember her age off the top of my head, but she's young, um, and she hasn't met Henry. And she's picked because um, her uncle by marriage, the King of France, doesn't want to send any closer relative because you know England and France have been at war. They don't really want to supply a French princess. So he sends his wife's niece. Um, she has, she's got not very many prospects. She's well connected, but her father is her father is a titular king of several kingdoms but um, controls none of them um, and is, is very, very poor. I mean, he can't even afford to send Margaret to England um, to fit her out as a, as a queen, um, so Henry has to pay for that. Um, but it's, you know, she's picked really because she's quite insignificant and really uh, dispensable as far as her uncle is concerned, the king of France. And again, it's really, really sad. Um, it's just... a an absolutely awful situation for her, I would say, in that, you know, it looks really glamorous going to become a queen. And actually, she is immediately placed at odds from all of her own family because she's married the enemy and through no choice of her own. They needed a French princess and she she was sort of insignificant enough that she did really. And. Um, Awful. I mean, awful to be honest. And then, of course, she meets Henry, and I mean, well, first time she meets him, she doesn't even recognise him because he dresses up as a squire to try and sort of woo her, and um she keeps him on his knees and doesn't realise it's him. <laughs> Just, it goes wrong. Um, but no, I do feel very sorry for her. I think she is. um She's a classic example of if you are a, a princess in the medieval period, it's not necessarily a good thing, really. Um, on the surface, it's glamour, but actually, you never quite know what you're going to get or where you're going to end up, um, and that's her life, really, and she has to make the best of it.
0: The terms of the marriage were cemented in the Treaty of Tours on May 22nd, 1444. Margaret arrived in England a year later on April 9, 1445, after a year of financial difficulties and massive preparation. On the 23rd of April, the 15-year-old Margaret and 23-year-old Henry were married at Titchfield Abbey. There are very few contemporary descriptions of Margaret, and none of Henry VI. What we know is that Margaret was described by a French chronicler, Thomas Basson, as a good-looking and well-developed girl. On May 28, 1445, Margaret made her official entrance into London. The real sentiments of the people in London on the day have been overshadowed by the villainous retelling of Margaret's story, which mentions grumblings and sullen looks in the crowd. We can never know for sure. Margaret was officially crowned Queen of England on May 30th, 1445, in a grand ceremony at Westminster Abbey. Henry VI had a disposition more suited to a monk than a king. He seemed to almost fear women and while we cannot assert that their marriage wasn't immediately consummated, Margaret would struggle to fall pregnant for the first eight years of their marriage. Unlike other medieval and Tudor queens who became pregnant but miscarried or had stillbirths, it appears that Margaret never fell pregnant in the beginning years of her marriage to Henry VI. While the early years of their marriage were marked by mutual respect, Margaret and Henry VI were polar opposites in personality, Here's Elizabeth about Henry VI. So Margaret is really
1: unlucky with the man that she she has to marry. I mean, you know, she hasn't met Henry before she is engaged to him and marries him. Um, so she's really unlucky. She draws a short straw um, because Henry is entirely unsuited to become king. I mean he's one of, I mean, one of the least successful English kings, I would think from the period by quite a margin um he comes to the throne as a baby and it's sort of it becomes apparent that he's perhaps not quite what a king should be he's certainly not his warlike father i mean henry v is considered to be at least in the period he is he is the model of a king what a king should be because he goes out and he conquers and henry vi is almost his exact opposite it's really difficult with henry um there are suggestions that he may have some sort of learning disability. However, um, actually, he does seem to be very well educated. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult one with him. I mean, it's certainly there is a suggestion by contemporaries that something that isn't quite right about him as far as, you know, the idea of a king should be. Um, he certainly has mental health issues later in life, which he probably inherits from his grandfather, his maternal grandfather, the King of France. Um, And I mean, he spends over a year at one stage in a catatonic state where he is awake and, you know, sort of eats, sits up, goes to bed, but is not really present. So, um, you know, is sort of being led around, doesn't acknowledge anyone. I mean, that's not normal behavior by any any stretch of the imagination um, so he clearly has significant mental health issues and I mean it's not really surprising his grandfather um, um, unfortunately suffers Um I mean, if his mental health condition first becomes apparent when he suddenly jumps off his horse and kills his attendants um, saying that you know he thinks there are assassins come to kill him and he believes that he's made of glass um, at one stage in so which is actually quite a common delusion Um But, you know, clearly significant mental health difficulties, which pass on to Henry. So Henry is in no way suited to become king. I mean, in any period, but particularly in the troubles of the 15th century, it's a disaster.
0: Margaret held much more of the assertive, extroverted personality of Henry V. Margaret, as numerous consorts had before her, began to discuss politics with her husband behind closed doors. While Margaret performed her duty as consort with tact and grace, her French lineage and political activism made enemies quickly. As Elizabeth states, She's really unpopular
1: with large numbers of people um, in the period. But again, if you look at the period in general, it's such a divided society. Um, You know, we've got the loss of France, because obviously Henry VI's father conquers France, and then Henry VI sort of slowly loses it. So Margaret, as a French woman, is always going to be in a difficult position in England in that context. And also in France, because, you know, she's a French woman who's moved to the other side, if you like, through no fault of her own. Um, Also, of course, we've got the Yorkists because, you know, we are right in what tends to be called the Wars of the Roses. Um, And, you know, the Yorkists really hate her because she stands up against their claims and she stands up for her husband and for her son regardless of sort of you know who really has the best claim to the throne um she is clearly you know she's very much seen as sort of the full guy if you like she's the poster guy for the house of lancaster and you know she is um hugely negatively portrayed in her lifetime I mean she's pushy, she's portrayed as pushy, she's portrayed as a possible adulteress, um, but uh, I mean a lot of it is she's forced into this political and this prominent role by the weaknesses of Henry VI and I think that's often not really kind of highlighted when we talk about Margaret.
0: By the time of their marriage, Henry VI was already showing signs of a mental illness that would come to define his reign. It can be assumed that after their marriage, Margaret would have been all too aware of her husband's mental instability. By 1447, Margaret had a more direct hand in the political workings of the court. She would write missives to foreign envoys and leaders alongside her husband and keep informed on any new developments in the country. While Margaret was devoted to her husband and vice versa, Margaret was far from secure in her new country. She had failed to produce any children, and there were men in court with close claims to the throne, some even claimed closer than Henry VI's. Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York, was a direct descendant of Edward III and held a prominent role in court. Another notable man, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, was also directly descended from Edward III, although he was descended through John of Gaunt and his mistress Catherine Swinford. To ensure her position and the continuance of her husband's line, Margaret had to produce a son. However, Henry was proving less than a helpful participant in the matter. After eight years of marriage in April of 1453, Margaret discovered that she was at last pregnant. The time of her pregnancy saw Richard, Duke of York, become increasingly isolated and antagonistic to Henry VI's court. In addition, continual tensions with France broke into outright war. Battles had been raging for months, but a devastating loss for the English forces at Bordeaux in October 1453 ended 300 years of English control in the Aquitaine region, which had begun with Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. When news of this reached England, Henry's fragile mental state completely disintegrated. To this day, No one is quite sure what caused Henry's breakdown. A number of medical speculations have been brought forward, ranging from catatonic schizophrenia to depressive stupor. What is known is that for the next few months, Henry VI remained in an almost vegetative state. It is almost impossible to imagine what the pregnant Margaret was going through. She was about to give birth to what would hopefully be a male heir, but her husband was unable or unwilling to speak, and there was no indication when or if it would end. Knowing how difficult pregnancy was in the medieval era, and how easy it was for a miscarriage to occur, I personally find it pretty extraordinary that Margaret was able to give birth to a healthy, living son on October 13th, 1453, surrounded by the amount of stress that she was. Margaret now held the key to her assured power in her husband's court. While the new infant secured Margaret's place as queen, it created an unexpected dilemma in a court with a catatonic king. Here's Elizabeth. So it's really, um, the birth of Margaret's son is the
1: complicating factor, really, Um, unfortunately so. Um, For years, she and Henry are married and they don't have any children. Um, I mean, the assumption is, you know, he wasn't perhaps performing his husbandly duties. he falls pregnant um, not long after he actually enters his catatonic state. So he's not able to recognize the baby as his um, until the child is about a year old, which is a problem for Margaret because there are rumors that she has been unfaithful and she's conceived a child with another man. Um, probably unfounded, but certainly again, the fact that Henry is unable to recognize his son is really really unlucky and really unfortunate for margaret because it again just kind of adds to this sort of weight of you know character assassination um edward of lancaster her son is a problem because if henry VI does doesn't have any children he doesn't have any siblings you know actually there aren't any close relatives who can take the throne so actually when the yorkists start asserting their claim to the throne and they have a very strong claim to the throne um Richard, Duke of York, is a descendant of the second son of Edward III, whereas Henry VI is only a descendant of the third son. So, Richard, York has a better claim to the throne by the hereditary laws of England. Um, Whether you can assert it or not is a different matter, but I mean, you know, on any family tree, um, he has a better claim to the throne. Um, So, without Edward of Lancaster, there's, there's room for some. Negotiation and manoeuvring, perhaps you know the Yorkist can be named as Henry's heir. With Edward of Lancaster, that that completely goes out the window. Margaret is a very, very she's very forceful in her protection of her son. Unsurprisingly, um, and she will not hear of him losing his place in the succession. And he is an altogether different character to his father. He comes across as much more attractive. He is much more as a fifteenth-century prince should be. And of course, he dies when he's a teenager, Um, but he is certainly a more attractive candidate for the throne than Henry VI. But he's very much the complicating
0: factor. After Prince Edward's christening a month after his birth, Richard, Duke of York, alongside his ally, the Earl of Warwick, began claiming that Edward could not formally be named heir until he was presented to and acknowledged by the king. The English public was unaware of Henry VI's condition, So whether through coincidence or design, rumors began to circulate that Prince Edward had not been acknowledged by the king as his heir, and therefore the country began assuming it was because Prince Edward was the product of an affair. Rather than let the rumors of infidelity humiliate her into silence, it galvanized Margaret into action. Margaret believed that as the prince's mother, she should have control of any regency that was put in place, Margaret would have learned about women in her own family and elsewhere, who had proven themselves powerful and able regents. But this was England, a country where no woman had ever been allowed near the reins of power in such a blatant and formal way. In addition, her French birth made her suspicious to a deeply anti-French public and government. In the words of historian Helen Castor, This foreign-born queen was damned twice over by her birth, and by her sex. The King's Council decided to name Richard Duke of York Regent rather than Margaret, a blow that must have been humiliating and devastating. But before Richard Duke of York could make any lasting changes in the government, on December 25, 1454, Henry VI suddenly woke up after 16 and a half months of catatonia. He had no memory of his months of illness but his recovery happened as quickly as his initial collapse. Five days after his miraculous recovery, Margaret presented Prince Edward to Henry VI, who formally recognized him as his son and heir. It would seem that Margaret was at the peak of her power, and the path ahead was assured. In reality, her troubles were only getting started. Some listeners may be aware of the complicated political beginnings of the Wars of the Roses or the Cousins' War. Without getting into too much detail and getting farther away from Margaret's story, information on the Wars of the Roses has been added to my website. The tensions that had been rising at court for a number of years reached a violent and irreversible climax at the Battle of St. Albans on May 22, 1455. A close ally of Margaret's, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, was killed, and Henry VI was captured by Richard, Duke of York. Richard made it clear that he intended no harm to the king, and only wanted to be reinstated as a close advisor. While Henry VI seemed to meekly accept Richard's new power, Margaret was determined to protect and preserve the English throne for her son. She began actively working against Richard's political plans. Margaret soon gathered enough loyal men to force Richard to resign and flee. Margaret quickly took over the control of her husband's cause. However, this strong will and protectiveness of her son's rights proved a double-edged sword. As the queen, she was in a privileged position of respect for women at the time. But the more she took over control, the more her own husband's position and ability to rule in his own right were questioned. Margaret's authority and refusal to compromise quickly made enemies among the beleaguered court. However, Margaret's actions and desire to protect her husband and son's rights to the throne Were expected behavior by politically motivated men. Margaret's biggest problem was that she was a woman. As Elizabeth argues, She gets a a lot of bad press that actually a
1: man wouldn't necessarily get if he was doing the same things. And um, I think often we sort of ignore the historical context of what's going on and who's actually saying these things about her. But in general, she's just hugely negatively portrayed. I think it's very, very difficult um, in the pre-modern period to be a powerful woman. Um, it's a real tightrope that they have to walk. Um, and you see it time and again in European history um, in the period. Um, it's not, It was not expected that women would be powerful. You're supposed to be a wife. You're supposed to be a mother. Um, you know, Interest yourself in the church. Um, and I think women who sort of step out of those boxes... It can be really really problematic and they get accused of appearing manly or you know um, a man who is sort of you know um, forceful is is portrayed positively whereas a woman is arrogant um, and you see this particularly with the Empress Matilda actually back in the 12th century but you know she is a claimant to the English throne and the language used against her is, is the sort of language that you just would never say to a man um, and I think it's the same with Margaret um, you know she is accused of arrogance and unfairness and arbitrariness which actually you just wouldn't say to a man. Richard Duke of York doesn't get this and he is her opponent. You know, he is also vying for the throne. Um so no, I think it's being a woman she's unfeminine. She is not in her correct sphere. And we see it with the Tudor reigning queens in the next century as well. It's very very difficult to be a woman and to be powerful. It's it's a difficult Path to tread. So I think the biggest misconception I would say is that um, she is blamed for the Wars of the Roses, if you like, um, that you know she is seen as the one who is always going to lose, but keeps the fight going at a great cost. And I think that is probably how she's largely seen. I mean, it's how she's portrayed in Shakespeare. She's, I mean, she's a she-wolf of France before Isabella of France got that nickname, according to Shakespeare. Um, but I think, you know, actually, when we think about her motivations, it doesn't... We're looking we're looking backwards. And we're also looking at, you know, we're looking at the family tree and saying, well, yeah, the Yorkists have got the best claim. And the Yorkists do have the best claim. But Henry VI is the crown king, and his father has been the crown king, and his grandfather has been the crown king. So I think, from Margaret's point of view, on the ground, it doesn't look as we necessarily see it. Because, you know, she's come, she's married a king... Um, And of course she's going to fight for her husband. And of course she's going to fight for her son. And I mean, I think it would be, I I can't imagine anyone saying, you know what, York's got the best claim to the throne, so we'll just go now, we'll go quietly. I can't imagine anyone in that position doing that, um, even if it would save lives. Um, And I think that's really, I mean, you know, Richard, Duke of York and Edward IV, cause a lot of deaths by claiming the throne they could equally say oh you know what we've got the best claim but we'll leave it you know we'll, we'll just carry on being dukes and peers and it'll be great um so I think you know again it, it's this idea of a woman waging war which um does affect her reputation and I think also the fact that she loses so she is not the person who wins but I yeah I mean I think that is the greatest misconception about Margaret I think what else could she do Henry VI is not up to defending his throne and he's not up to defending his son's position. So Margaret has to take over because no one else is going to do it.
0: After 10 years of political struggle between Richard and Margaret, Richard, Duke of York, was killed during a skirmish at his castle at Sandal in December of 1460. Rather than a secure victory for Margaret and Henry VI, what followed was a race to London between the King's forces and the Yorkists the name of the forces that supported Richard's claim to the throne. In the end, Richard's son Edward entered London to great acclaim, and in one final decisive battle in Towton, in March 1461, Margaret's army was decimated. After initially escaping to Scotland, Margaret escaped to France with her son, leaving her husband behind. He would eventually be captured and imprisoned in the Tower of London by the newly crowned King Edward IV. Margaret had never been a popular queen, but with King Edward IV on the throne, her negative legacy was begun in full force. She began to be depicted as a manipulative foreign villainess intent on destroying England for the betterment of her homeland, France. A poem from 1461 shows the newfound blatant animosity towards Margaret. It stated, Queen Margaret, to govern all England with might and power and to destroy the right line was her intent. She and her wicked affinity certain, intent utterly to destroy this region. Margaret never stopped attempting to raise an army to take back her husband's throne, if not for her husband, then for her own son. Ten years after going into exile in Europe, luck shifted once again to Margaret's side. Elizabeth discusses what happens next in Margaret's story. So she... Um, in 1470, she's been a living.
1: She's been living in France with her son for some time, and Henry VI is in the Tower. Um, in 1470, she makes a deal with the Earl of Warwick, who is, who had been Edward IV, the Yorkist kings. I mean, it's all hideously complicated, but it's so. Um, so Warwick is Edward IV's cousin and he falls out with him and makes a deal with Margaret and basically says you know if you um if your son marries my daughter I'm going to support you we're going to bring Henry back to the throne um you can come back so she agrees um and even then she doesn't do it lightly actually she um keeps Warwick on his knees for quite some time in their sort of reconciliation ceremony just you know really she's showing who's boss um and I think Warwick would have struggled if with Margaret if, if it had all come off as they hoped and they'd all come back to England. Um, so Warwick goes to England, deposes Edward IV, brings Henry VI out of the tower and puts him on the throne again, although there's no suggestion that Henry is actually ruling independently. By this stage, I am not know, he's, he has retreated into himself, really. Um, he's no longer an active political figure to any extent. He's a figurehead. Um... Margaret and her son then prepare their own forces in France um, and they're just really unlucky. They land in England in 1471 just as Warwick is defeated by Edward IV at the Battle of Barnet and he is killed. Um, So they land and they know that Henry VI is back in the Tower and Edward is back on the throne. They carry on and Margaret's forces meet Edward IV at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Um, on the 4th of May, 1471. And she um, she's there riding among the troops before the battle, but then retires to a religious house. Her son is there and he is killed during the battle um, or possibly afterwards. I and mean, there are some sources that say that he's brought to Edward and then executed, um, but he doesn't survive the day. Um, her forces are defeated and Margaret is taken to London and paraded to London really as a prisoner um, because she is the one that Edward IV wants to capture. That night she's in the tower and her husband is murdered in the tower. So um, the point, I mean, the thing with that is with her husband and her son dead, Margaret has no cause anymore. Um, and of course she knows this. Um, there's nothing to fight for. Um, she doesn't have an alternative heir. The house of Lancaster is effectively gone. Um, so she stays in the tower. She's in prison for quite a while. And eventually she's ransomed to France Um by um Edward and he receives quite a lot of money for her and then she retires to France but it's 1471 really where her story effectively ends and she's got nothing left so it's a story of failure but it's also a story of trying really really hard in spite of quite insurmountable odds on many occasions.
0: Free but now without purpose Margaret fell away from the records. When she died on August 25th, 1482, it was barely remarked upon. Eight months after her own death, Edward IV suddenly and shockingly died from a stroke, leaving his own young son to succeed him as king. The Game of Thrones, so to speak, which had consumed Margaret's life, was far from over. Edward IV's two sons have since become known as the princes in the Tower, and the next three years were a chaotic scramble for control over the English throne ending with the ascension of the first Tudor monarch, Henry VII. It wasn't until 1594, with Shakespeare's play Henry VI, that Margaret was written back into British lore. Shakespeare characterized Margaret as a vindictive, ambitious adulteress, whose manipulation helped bring about the Wars of the Roses. This image of Margaret has become the commonly accepted legacy for much of history. Elizabeth discusses the power of Shakespeare's narrative. I think a lot of it comes from
1: Shakespeare because I think he publicizes Margaret's existence because, you know, I mean, otherwise she'd probably be a relatively obscure 15th century queen And that, you know, I mean, we everyone's heard of the Wars of the Roses or, you know, I mean, and now it's quite often called the Cousins War. But it's, you know, it's... The personalities perhaps are less well known. I mean, I think Richard, Duke of York, for example, is a lot less vivid than Margaret, even though, you know, he is of considerable importance in the period um so yeah I think Shakespeare is for a large part responsible for driving how Margaret is portrayed in that he brings her to popular consciousness for the first time and she is an unrelentingly negative character in his play um, you know she is a bit of a nightmare really so I think that really doesn't help and it's it's continued down the centuries. I mean, she, the Victorians don't attempt to portray her in a negative way because she's seen as quite unfeminine. Um, I mean, that that is a common problem for women that take up arms. I mean, she's not fighting in the battles, but she's, she's certainly present at the battlefields um, before the battles and is helping with the strategy. So um, she's seen as quite unwomanly, quite unqueenly. And I think it continues, really. And even today, I think the negative, there's so much negativity about her that actually it's quite difficult to rehabilitate her to some extent. She's often portrayed quite negative. She's often portrayed slightly in opposition to Elizabeth Woodville, who gets her own bad press. She's obviously the wife of Edward IV, but she's generally portrayed as much more feminine, much more womanly, motherly than Margaret. But actually, I mean, Margaret really fights for her son. Um, in a way that Elizabeth is perhaps more able to come to terms, you know. Um, so, again, I mean, I think it, it is partly portrayal in opposition. And we see this with Margaret Beaufort, who gets portrayed in opposition to Elizabeth Woodville as well. I mean, and Margaret Beaufort, Henry VII's mother, is a woman that gets bad press. I mean, if Margaret of Anjou thinks she gets bad press, wait till, wait till she hears about Margaret Beaufort. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's simply there is so much negativity about Margaret Anjou that it is difficult to wade through. And I think we have an idea of how it pans out. You know, Henry VI is a doomed king. Edward of Lancaster never becomes king. He's, you know, he's, he's a bit pointless in many respects, um, a complicating factor. Um, and so it's difficult to see the positives in Margaret, which is a real shame, I think. The losers in in war and in battles are always... I mean, you know, actually, if they'd just given up at the start, then it would have saved a lot of lives. Um, But of course, nobody at the time knows which way it's going to go. And, um, you know, both sides believe that they're entirely righteous and they're right to be taking up arms. But I think, you know, um, she is a loser. And ultimately, it looks very futile. And I think that doesn't help her reputation.
0: History is written by the victors, as the saying goes creating a narrative that ensures the victor's cause and actions were justified. If Margaret's cause had won, our interpretation of the individuals and events of the Wars of the Roses could be entirely different. As Elizabeth points out,
1: with Margaret we could equally characterise Margaret as a devoted wife um, to a husband who is very, very ill, devoted mother who is fighting for their rights when it's all sort of collapsing and, you know, she never gives up and she's always focused on Henry and then Edward. That's, you know, those are who she's working towards. And I think we can characterise her like that, but it's the negative side that comes out instead of devoted wife and mother she's you know even in her own time she's portrayed as you know possibly an adulteress and sort of you know an unwomanly woman d- driving her husband in the wrong direction when actually i mean henry vi he doesn't really uh, there are points in his reign where he doesn't really have any drive at all um you know he does need some someone taking the reins
0: of policy rather than a cartoon villain margaret could be viewed as a proto feminist a woman who saw the barriers placed in her way because of her gender and chose to push past them. Here's Elizabeth. I mean,
1: I think she's fascinating. She is such a powerful woman and she is, she's almost a queen in her own right, Points and we we're in a period where England hasn't had a, an effective reigning queen by this stage, and the closest they've come is back in the 12th century of the Empress Matilda. So, I mean, of course, she's not a reigning queen, but she effectively takes over the government. Um, You know, she she recognizes her husband's inadequacies. She wants to ensure that at least her son is protected because there, you know, there is some evidence of you know Margaret perhaps sort of backing away slightly from Henry and and facing and you know working towards Edward. Ultimately, um, but she takes control of the House of Lancaster. She raises her own armies. Um, she takes her armies to the field. She doesn't actually go into battle with her armies, but she's very much one of the commanders. It's Margaret who becomes the leader of the House of Lancaster, and um, she she's. Powerful, she's strong, and she's really really interesting and like looking at her through the political negotiations as well, she's so dominant and when you think that you know she's not even english you know she's she's been raised in France, she's come into this situation it's really, really impressive, and she fights and fights and fights for her son i mean she doesn't give up until he's ultimately killed, and then really uh, her story sort of as an active political figure, largely comes to an end. But she's just so powerful. And I think it's really important that we bring out powerful women in history because so often they do get glossed over and ignored or sort of people believe the bad bad about them. Because, of course, if you're going to be a powerful woman, you're going to upset some people in your period and in later periods. So I think it's really important
0: that we talk about Margaret. In regards to what she hopes Margaret's legacy could be, this is what Elizabeth had to say. I'd like her to be remembered
1: as um, a forerunner for the English reigning queens, and you know, and then British reigning queens, because it's not until the sixteenth century that either of the crowns in in Britain and um, the English or the Scottish crown crown a reigning queen. So actually these reigning queens need to look back to um, queen consorts, powerful queen consorts. So Margaret is someone that they're potentially looking back to. So I'd like her legacy really to be evidence of female power, that, you know, she is a precursor to reigning queens, that she is proof that women can wield power um, and can be very political. And that obviously has negative and positive connotations, but I think it's really, really important that we pick out these women who do have real power and real agency in their lives because actually so often, even with the very highest-ranking women, Queen's consorts, they actually just sort of get passed around and have very little agency. So I think that's really important, and I think that should be her legacy. She is the proof of female power and the fact that women could wield power, which does have an effect on the politics of the following centuries, I would say. And a woman who is effectively dumped in a really difficult political situation i mean you know she's she's raised in france um you know she's a sort of minor princess she's a niece of the queen of france and she is thrown into english politics that and, and nothing to do with her and I mean, and it's as often the consequence for foreign princesses that have to marry into um, foreign crowns is that actually it's often an absolute nightmare um and you know, it's nothing to do with Margaret and she, but it has to become hers. And that's, I think, you know, actually you look at her, I just feel feel so sorry for her.
0: Margaret's life was defined by near misses and crushing failures. At moments, Margaret came within reach of success, only to have bad luck strike against her. She was sent to England to marry the eligible King Henry VI of England, only to discover his political inadequacies when she arrived. She struggled to produce an heir, but soon after falling pregnant, her entire future was put at risk when her husband went into a catatonic state for months. The early months of the Wars of the Roses saw triumphant victories for Margaret's army, even seeing her rival, the Duke of York, killed. But at the last moment, her army was scattered and decimated. An unlikely feud ten years after exile between the Earl of Warwick and the new King Edward IV gave Margaret the long-sought-after opportunity to reclaim the throne, but the initial victories were short-lived and Margaret's son was killed in battle. When looking at the larger backdrop on which Margaret's story played out, it isn't hard to understand and even sympathize with her actions. Far from being a fairy tale villain, Margaret's story provides a nuanced and tragic look into one person's struggle to survive in a country divided. In the end, we must all ask ourselves, what would we have done?